so that they didn't have to hear it. Um, but I see you've come in now, and, and we're all here together. I want to say a few things uh, up front. Um, this, this message is, again, kind of falls in that category, very practical, very hands-on. And I know some of us would say, you know, Carl, just, just pre- get to Hebrews and preach pure doctrine and theology, and that's what we want. But there's a time and a place for just straightforward instruction from God's Word. Proverbs is one of those places where the truth of God is distilled down to very practical, application-oriented life truth for us. It's on the bottom shelf. I admit that up front. The sermons you're hearing in this series, these, these sermons right here are bottom shelf sermons. You walk out with, hopefully, a clear understanding of what God says, how I distill that into practical, practical implication to encourage you to live life. And so some... some um, some of you, that's not your favorite style, and that's okay. We all have our preference. For some of you love these, you wish this is all we did. And there would be danger in not being moderate in our preaching. If we were all one thing or all another, we would be uh, leaving out the counsel of God on some of it. So we want to practice moderation in preaching also. All right? And so Proverbs uh, gives us a picture, and I, I want to paint that picture and expand it broader than just the book of Proverbs. I want to expand it over some other uh, places in the Scripture to make it clear. The title of this sermon is Moderation in Drinking and Eating and Life, Excess in Worship. The picture of the Bible is moderation in all things. So, I am free to be excessive in worship to God. The Bible does not teach absolutes in the area of drink or eating or exercise. It does not teach regulations, hard, fast regulations in these areas. And I think the reason is, is because the call of God on our life is to be free from excess in anything. Why? Because as we're hopefully going to see, our hearts are idolatrous. They lend themselves to grab hold of anything, especially, especially physical and especially things of pleasure. We grab hold of them so that we can worship those things rather than God who gave us the gifts of those things. We want to worship something, but we don't want to worship God. We want to worship the things of God, the things that he's given us. So the reason the Bible doesn't paint hard rules one way or another is because this truly is an area of gray. There are some who need to refrain completely, absolutely. And there are others who can deal with moderation and temperance, and, and, and good choices, and wisdom. And there are others who choose to abstain, not because they're afraid of the thing itself, but rather because they simply want to delay that pleasure until the kingdom, and enjoy the pleasure of Christ in this life. And all of those three are allowable. The easiest place to, to talk about moderation is in the area of alcohol. And the reason is, is because it's a very obvious one. It's very clear. 
Wine is constantly used in the Bible. The word wine is from cover to cover in the Bible to refer, and I know this will shock you, but it refers, the word itself refers, and most commonly is used to refer to alcoholic beverage, to wine that is fermented, to grape juice that has become fermented. They did not have preservative abilities in their day. And so the harvest of grapes was in one time of the year. And when they harvested the grapes and they, they brought the juice from the grape, there, it only kept for a short time without becoming fermented. Take grape juice, any pure 100% grape juice, pour it in a cup, sit it on a counter, cover it, do anything you want to do. But at room temperature, at normal temperatures, it will ferment. ferment okay? So some of the times it is possible that they're drinking unfermented drink but very rarely very rarely I might say I find it uh, uh, abusive of the Bible to try to make it say something it doesn't say and so I want to be clear when the Bible uses the term wine it most commonly refers to what we would understand as fermented grape juice just some examples of that Genesis chapter 9 Genesis chapter 9 I mean uh, Noah himself was a vineyard keeper. He planted vineyards. He drew from the fruit of the vine. In Genesis 9 verse 21, the scripture says that after he had planted his vineyard, he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Okay? That word wine is the same word throughout the Old Testament. The Greek word which translates that Hebrew term for us is the same Old Testament and New Testament. It's the same Greek word, all right? So what he was drinking here obviously was not 100% grape juice fresh off the vine. He became drunk with it, so much so that he lay uncovered. It's not saying that's a positive thing, obviously. It's just saying it's a thing. It's something that he did, okay? But I'm just talking about the use of the term, Genesis 19. Genesis 19, 32 through 35. Come, let us make our father drink wine. This is Lot's daughters. And we will lie with him that we may preserve offering offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Again, the same term, wine, being used here to describe Lot and his daughters. Not in a positive sense, but obviously that word connotes something that is able to alter the mind. He didn't know when they rose or when they lay down. John chapter 2, just for a positive use of this term. John chapter 2. In Jesus' first public ministry, first public miracle of his ministry. John chapter 2. Jesus is at a feast, a wedding feast. We know from customs that these were very, um, very raucous at times parties. They extended for days. They didn't have weddings one day in the daytime, have a reception afterwards and go home. Many times people travel from long distances and they would stay for days, sometimes a week at these events. This particular wedding must have been rather long because the host didn't prepare enough. And he runs out of wine. 
Jesus then creates out of water wine. And when it's taken to the chief steward, the, the one who's looking over the uh, ceremonies, making sure that and tasting and making sure the food is good and making sure the wine is good. The master of the feast tasted in verse 9, the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. Notice, Jesus' wine is being referred to as the good wine. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Why? Because as the party moved forward, there was two reasons to have cheap wine at the end. Once they drank the good wine, there was a numbing effect. They were drinking something that was fermented. And it tasted good and people imbibed it and it altered their sense of taste. Then the poor wine was brought out. They couldn't tell the difference in the two. Those who try to say what Jesus created was grape juice are missing the point. Jesus created alcoholic, fermented juice, wine. It can't be avoided from the text. The other thing they did is they started serving the poor wine to make people go home. The cheaper, less enjoyable, not, you know, people didn't want to hang around. So they took it to the house. The party's getting dull. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe that it was at that point they introduced grape juice or less fermentation so the people began to sober up and say, well, the party must be over. Let's go home. I'm not saying that, but there are many who say that. So those who try to twist what Jesus did are missing the point. Jesus created fermented fruit of the vine. And he did that at a place where people were taking it freely. Same thing. Acts 2, we won't read it for time's sake, but Acts 2 is very clear. They're drinking what is referred to as new wine in that text, and they're accused of being drunk. Peter has to get up and say, they're not drunk. They're full of the Holy Spirit. Right? So it wasn't, they didn't think they were drinking something that wasn't alcoholic. They thought they were drinking that. That's, that's the very point of the text. Again, there is Scripture is clear from beginning to end. It uses the word, and the word wine typically means fermented, not unfermented. Uh, just an aside, Luke 22, where Jesus in, inserts the Lord's Supper at the end of the feast with his disciples in the upper room. The, the, what they used for communion was wine of alcoholic substance. How do I know? Alcohol substance. How do I know? Harvest was six months previous to their celebration of Passover. You could not keep wine fresh for six months. It had to be fermented. Okay? So Jesus took it in the communion supper itself, and Paul would have, and many others. Okay? So first thing I would like to say is the Bible's consistent in its word usage here. There's, there's no way to divide when it's talking about grape juice, when it's talking about fermented juice. It's all one word, and it's used in some obvious places where it has to be preferring, referring to fermentation. All right, so what are some, um, what are some things we know from Scripture about um, wine or alcohol? Psalm 104 is a good text. It's one that uh, many on, on the side of 
teetotal abstinence skip. They, won't, they don't refer to this passage in their argument. Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. And then he goes down and describes God, this beautiful vision of who God is. And, and just the beauty and, and the majesty and the sovereignty of God in verse 15 or verse 14 says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. Here, wine, the use is positive. The Bible is saying God causes plants to grow. He causes grapes to grow. He does that so you can take and make your heart glad with these things. It's a positive thing. This is where the urban legend quote from Benjamin Franklin comes from, by the way. Benjamin Franklin, we do not think historically, said, I know some of you own the mugs and the t-shirts, where he said something to the order of you see it several ways beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to enjoy life he didn't say that but in reference to this text he said wine is obviously from God rain falls from the sky enters the root goes up to the vine causes the sap the juice fills the fruit the fruit is squeezed and wine produces gladness he was a good expositor in some way, although he wasn't a Christian. Psalm 104, 1 and verse 15, put it in context. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. In our book, Proverbs, we see a statement about wine. Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7. A good use of wine in their day. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. And wine to those in bitter distress or emotional, mental distress. Strong uh, drink. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So it speaks to the effect that wine has to alleviate the suffering of the people of their day. It's a positive use. It's being encouraged by <clears throat> King Lemuel. Genesis 14, 18, for time's sake we won't read it, but it's the story of Abraham coming back from conquering and delivering the people from the four kings of the east. And Melchizedek, the representative of Jesus Christ, comes and he brings to Abraham, Abraham didn't bring to him, he brings to Abraham wine and bread for Abraham to drink after and eat after his victory. So the representative of God Most High introduces to Abraham strong drink and bread after the battle. A positive view here on the idea of wine. Isaiah 55, verse 1. If we turn to Isaiah 55, we see another positive in the Scripture regarding wine. I know that those who uh, argue for prohibition don't point to these passages, but I think to be fair to the Bible, we must look at them. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So we're, here we're being called by God into, the, into buying from him without money. And one of the things he puts there is wine, along with milk. And so 
again, a positive. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Well-aged. Beyond the beginning process, this is old wine. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, skillfully made wine. God is going to give this to the people. Ecclesiastes 9-7, one more positive uh, representation. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Solomon says, Go, eat your bread with, your, with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. It's, it's, it's an encouragement here. These are, the, these are some of the positive passages. There's others, but for time's sake, we'll look at these. I think the point's clear. The use of the word wine is unanimous across the scriptures. There are positive scriptures about wine in the Bible. We don't need to dodge those. There are also negative passages, and I'm particularly going to stick in Proverbs now. In Proverbs, dealing with wine and alcohol. Proverbs chapter 4. There are negative texts about wine. Proverbs 4, verse 17. Talking here about those who are not following wise instruction, those who are foolish, those who are wicked. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. This is a statement about their use of wine, and, and it's a statement about them being violent men. Here it's a negative. The wine is seen as negative. Proverbs 20, verse 1. We look over it later in the book. <clears throat> Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You notice that wine makes a man do foolish things. Wine mocks the person who thinks they have full control over it easily. How, what do we see in the last half of the verse? It's a mocker of those who are led astray by it. It is not wise. The person is not wise. Here the statement is negative about wine and the use of wine. Those who are using it are using it in a, in a harmful way. It is leading them astray. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 19 through 21. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards. Or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Here the statement is negative about the use of wine because it's being abused. And the warning is against excess in the area of alcohol and, and food. We'll get there. It causes foolish decisions which lead to poverty. Which lead to them being in want. Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. 
It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. The warning is strong here against the the excess of alcohol because it causes the king to make foolish decisions. He forgets his decrees. He goes against the justice due to those who are being unjustly treated. He might declare war foolishly in his drunkenness. That's been done in history many times. Wastefully living, he then makes bad decisions. Isaiah chapter 5. Just so you don't think Isaiah was a drunkard. Isaiah 5. Because I gave all these positives out of Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah 5. Verses 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Here, the danger of making your life. This is, again, talking about that idolatrous heart. You're running after strong drink in the morning and you find your enjoyment in it at night and you forget the Lord in all of this revel making and you sin against God. So there are positives and there are negatives. So let's look at one text in Proverbs verse chapter 23 and I want to distill some truths about wine and about moderation. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. While you're turning there, I just want to make it clear to you. I come from a family that where I was none, nobody in my immediate family were drinkers. The reason they weren't on my mother's side is because my great grandfather, my granddad's dad, was a drunk. He was abusive. He often went without work, and so his kids and wife suffered, and it so turned them from the use of alcohol that they became teetotalers. And that just passed down from generation to generation. I grew up in that environment. That's where I grew up. My church, my church, my home church was a teetotaler church. The school I attended, the Christian school, was a teetotaler school. Everything in my environment was teetotal, anti the use of alcohol. And so I I don't want you to think I come from a background where there was a lot of abuse of, of alcohol. That does shape my opinions and my understandings. I understand that. Many of you have been harmed by alcohol and the the use of alcohol in harmful ways. And I recognize that. But what I want to do in this section of the sermon, after having laid out the use of the word, the positives, the negatives, and now I want to look at this from one text here in Proverbs and give what I think is a scriptural idea about the use of alcohol and and an encouragement towards moderation. First of all, in Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35, the person who longs longs for alcohol is headed for destruction. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Fiery eyes. Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Okay? So I want to explain, unless I understand, mixed wine here. What became a common practice because of an impatience in the fermentation process? I'm not a distiller. Okay, so I'm speaking out of league. 
I have to depend on others. You take grape juice in their day and go through the process they went through to get the juice and then cap it and set it aside. It began to ferment. If you rush the process, take the wine before it's ready, it can kill you. It can at the very least make you deathly sick. So what they would do is dilute that. They, they, if they got impatient, they would take it and they would dilute it. So that they were getting just a little bit of the, the wine and a lot of another substance that wasn't dangerous for them. There was another reason they mixed wine, as I understand it. Well, so they could ingest more of it. So they would take honey and they would take other sweet um, substances and they would mix it, enter it in after the fermentation process and let it sit longer and it would get a sweet taste and they could take in more of it. Okay? So however you look at mixed wine, that, that was a practice in their day of being able to either short-circuit the process or to get more of the alcohol in their bodies. Okay? So it wasn't a positive habiting. It wasn't something that was good. And I think that helps us in this text because the person is longing for alcohol and they're headed for destruction. Notice the woe, sorrow, strife, complaining, wounds, needless Wounds and the lack of sleep comes from tearing long over wine. Going hard after mixed wine. So the warning at the beginning of the passage is not to long after it. Again, in the scripture we see that our hearts are longing for something. That starts to lead us to the idea of what? Worship. An, uh, an unhealthy Love for one thing other than Christ leads us to worship and idolatry. So that's the first thing we see. The person who longs for alcohol is headed for destruction. The person who longs for alcohol, secondly, will be carried away in destructive and perverted thoughts. Verses 31 through 33. The text is very clear. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. This is the dangerous part of the fermentation process. This is what we might call unfinished wine. It needed to sit longer. Be careful with it. Do not look at it. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. It drives people crazy. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Perverted thoughts are brought about. Dreams and visions that are, that are, that are ungodly are brought and introduced. It will bite you. It will kill you. It will lead you down the path of destruction. So the person who longs for alcohol will be carried away eventually if they're not careful in destructive and perverted thoughts. Third, the person who longs for alcohol will be consumed or controlled by its impact. There's a physical, mental, and spiritual impact shown to us in verses 34 through 35. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. That's the physical impact. The, the legs are wobbly. Like one who lies on top of a mast. This guy is like the, up on top of the riggings of a ship and he's just being altered physically. Anybody who's ever experienced seasickness or motion sickness would know what the proverb writer is getting to. Alcohol has a very de definite physical impact when it's taken in this longing heart, this desire to have it and have more of it, it leads to physical fallout that is not positive. <clears throat> he goes on. 
Look at verse 35. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. This is a mental. Uh, uh, you ever been around someone who's, who's an alcoholic? They have lots of mental issues, breakdowns. They begin to become very paranoid, very uh, suspicious often. They'll, they make up whole stories as if it really happened. You know? You've seen this, I know. I know I, know I have. Some of you have had to live with it, unfortunately. And that's what's going on here. There's a mental and a physical impact, and then there's a spiritual impact. Verse 35, they, at the end of verse 35, it says, When shall I wake? Notice, I must have another drink. The spiritual impact is it brings about a heart of worship. You worship this thing. You've got to have it. You can't live without it. Your mind is turned towards it. Okay, so hopefully I've been fair here. But I want to now move from the principles to the application. So the principle that I see from this text and many others is that those who have a heart to drink excessively, abusively, sin against God. There's no exceptions to that. That they do sin against God in this desire and in their action. Okay? I believe that's as far as we can go with our warning. That's as far as I think the Bible goes in its warning. The principle is that when you desire to be drunk, when you seek after drunkenness, you are sinning against God. All right, so what applications can we make? First of all, I think we need to take our lesson here, drunkenness, and we need to expand it beyond alcohol. I take my key from the proverb writer. Proverb 23, notice, in verse 19 and verse 20, which puts in context the verses I exposited to you. Verse 20 says, Be not among drunkards, or among gluttonous meat eaters. So I want to say something to you here. Some of you in here need to hear moderation in alcohol. Some of you need to hear, I long after alcohol too much. I can't have a good time without alcohol. I think I'm a better person with alcohol. I can't live without it. Or I just, I'm not going to live without it. But more of you need to hear, do not associate with gluttons. It's easy in a self-righteous attitude to look at the man who drinks too much and say he's a sinner while sinning in the area of eating. In other words, it's easy to pick on somebody else's sin and not look at my sin. Some of you need to hear these warnings for moderation and you need to apply it in the area of exercise. <gasps> I touched the Holy Grail. Gina's laughing. <laughs> Robert and I had this conversation. 
I know it seems strange to most of you, but there are those whose minds become worshipful about exercise. They cannot function without it. It controls when they rise, when they eat, when they sleep, when they associate, when they don't associate with others. It controls everything about them. Any spare moments where they get some time, they're either studying about exercise and the benefits of it, or they're exercising. It controls them. Some of you need to hear this in the area of academics. Some of you need to hear it in the area of work. Some of you need to hear it in the area of sex. Some of you need to hear this warning about drunkards and gluttons from some other angle. Don't sit here and listen to this sermon and look at your buddy across the way and say, I hope he's listening. All of our hearts are idol factories. Yours may be strong drink. His may be eating. Yours may be exercise. Another's might be sex. But everybody can apply the principles that I'm teaching, about to teach even more. Moderation. Because our lives are being eaten up with consuming and being consumed. That's the problem. Let me show you why I say that. Titus chapter 1. Paul writing to his son in the ministry about doing ministry on the island of Crete. A place that was obviously famous for its laziness and its gluttony and its drunkenness. Titus chapter 1 verse 12 so drunkards and gluttons and exercise-holics and workaholics and sexaholics and all these addicts are sinning against God. It's sin. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not, he could have said that very statement about our modern culture. This testimony is true. Therefore, what do I do? Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure. All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. We're going to come back to this, but that's a key statement in this whole message. Why can we live in moderation according to alcohol and food and exercise? In other words, why can we in these gray areas partake or not partake? Because there's everything to the Christian is pure. If it's not outlawed by God directly, it's okay. I said okay. Notice I said that? Okay, yeah, hang on that to the end. I'm going to come back to that. It's okay. Just okay. All these things are just okay. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You are sinning in the area of alcohol, food, exercise. You fill in the blank. Anything beyond the worship of God when it is such a part of your life that it defines you and you become useless to God in His kingdom. You are sinning. Paul says, rebuke them. That's, that's, that's straightforward, isn't it? Second application. 
we must avoid at least three sinful responses to alcohol, food. We must, must avoid three sinful responses. First of all, there is self-righteous teetotalers. This is the group, by large part, that I grew up with. I am righteous because I do not drink or I do not overeat or I do exercise a lot, or I do work hard, or you get the point. I'm righteous by this thing, whatever it is. It's my standard of righteousness. These people are nauseating. I'm just being blunt with you. If you fall in this category, you offend people regularly, and you detract from the gospel supremely. Because you offend by your very presence Those who you think you're reaching by your strong stance. You infuriate them. They don't want to be around you. They mock your cheap gospel. Oh, that's all it takes to be holy in his book is not to drink too much. Not to eat too much, whatever it is. Self-righteous teetotalers. John Piper in 1981 went to Bethlehem and in in early 82 he preached a sermon which I commend to all of you. He preached a sermon. Now listen, John Piper does not drink alcohol. By choice, he just doesn't do it. But when he got to Bethlehem they had a prohibition of drinking in their church contract, in their church covenant. It said that they could only join the church if you were a teetotaler. And he preached one of the early sermons was preaching to remove that from the church covenant. And this is his statement, and I agree wholeheartedly with it. Many millions of people will die and go to hell because of their drunkenness. But many more millions will die and go to hell because of their self-righteous teetotaling. The greater sin is self-righteousness. The greater sin is the belief that I'm better. I'm supreme. I'm good because I don't do whatever it is, particularly alcohol in this case. Self-righteousness as a teetotaler. Second response that we must avoid is self-righteous legalism. These are the prohibitionists. A teetotaler may be a teetotaler and not require anyone else to not drink. We'll get to that in just a moment. But there are those who both don't drink and require that nobody else drinks. This is the self-righteous legalist response. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Colossians 2 is our guide here. Paul, dealing in cultures that were full of drink and eat and overuse of all kinds of things, he writes a lot about this idea. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Let no one pass judgment on you like a self-righteous legalist over food or drink with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, I would say in our day, in our evangelical world, some need to hear that verse and say, I need to get off my soapbox against alcohol or against overeating. I need to get off that. I don't need to judge people according to that any longer. I need to stop it. And others of us need to hear that and say, I don't need to judge that someone's 
cool or in the in crowd because they do drink or they don't drink. I mean, because they do drink or they do eat a lot. I need to get out of this idea of passing judgment based on outward things. Why? Because these are just shadows of Christ. In other words, all of the Jewish festivals were shadows of Jesus and of the coming celebration we would have in the new heavens and the new earth. And in every one of those festivals, they drank wine. Why? To show the joy of the kingdom. The party element of the kingdom is real and it's coming. But whatever you're partying in today is a mere shadow of what's coming. So don't pass judgment on someone over it. It's just just a shadow. It's just an earthly thing. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to Christ, the head from whom the whole body nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Don't let anyone impose legalistic rules on you or the worship of angels or visions because it takes you away from Christ. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Hear that, teetotaler, teetotaler, prohibitionist. These things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Some of you need to be careful with your response to these things because you have created rules that God didn't create and you're not imposing them only on yourself but on others. And you're saying this is how you're proven to be righteous or good. And that's worthless in keeping the flesh from sin. Those outward prohibitions are worthless. (laughs) One of the heights of alcoholic use in the continent of America was during what era? Prohibition. When they took the census before and after, more people were drinking after than before. Outward regulations are worthless. In this regard, they don't save you. They don't make you righteous. They don't curb the inner desires. There are those who are self-righteous teetotalers. I'm good because I don't drink or I don't overeat or I do exercise or I don't worship exercise. There are others who are self-righteous legalists in prohibition. You can't do it. Then there's a third response. There's those that are drunkards and gluttons. The third response to alcohol is what I think our younger evangelical crowd needs to hear, and that is, oh, there's no danger in it. Just throw the door open and take it. You are on the path to being a drunkard. It is gaining inch by inch control in your life. If that's your attitude, just throw the gate open and enjoy. It's dangerous. The Proverbs that I read to you are a warning. Constantly warning. Do not Lust after strong drink. Many are foolishly telling their parishioners they need to drink. That's foolishness. No one needs to drink. No one has to drink. It's dangerous to have that kind of attitude. So those are three things to avoid. First of all, drunkards and gluttons are sinning against God. Second of all, we have to avoid at least these three sinful responses. Third application, we must allow freedom on the use of alcohol 
food, exercise, these things that are great, we must allow freedom. This freedom is a matter of exercising faith. I, w- I want to drive this point home. This is, the, this is the key, I think, to a biblical understanding. First of all, I want to deal with two passages that I think are abused in our day. 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. 8, really 8, 9, and 10. And I'm not going to read them. But I want to tell you, be very careful in this text about how you apply it. Paul says something very specific. And I just want to read one verse to you. 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food... Offered to idols. What is Paul talking about? What is his subject? The use of food offered to idols. It's not good to just immediately generalize this text and say it applies to all things equally. It doesn't. This text has been abused in many ways. One, by the teetotaler. See? As they read through and they see that it may cause offense, so don't do it. They hear that in Paul's writing. They say, see, you just shouldn't do it because it might offend somebody. Hold on. So what if that person's offended because I um, choose to eat steak? What if that person's offended because I choose to have five children? Instead of one or two. What if that person's offended by red? So I got to take off red clothes and never wear them again. What if that person's offended because I drive a car? What if that person's offended because I wear pants as a woman and not a dress? What if that, woman, what if that person's offended because I cut my hair and don't braid it if I'm a woman? What if that person, you see the danger of just throwing away the context and saying, here's these regulations, just got to apply them. He's speaking very specifically about food offered to idols. He's talking about people who have been one time worshiping false gods and in their practice they ate and drank things offered to those gods and then they, in eating that, participated with those gods. And he puts it in further context in chapter 10 when he talks about the participation that all the Israelites had when they went through the Red Sea, they were baptized, and when they went into the desert and ate the manna from heaven, they were participating with God in those things. When they drank water from the rock, they were participating with God in that thing. Okay? And then he gives the regulation about not eating things you know offend, again, in the idolatrous situation. I used this text with Jill Ray just a few weeks ago. Because she was in a Hindu culture, and they have their little God sitting at the table, and all the food sitting at the foot of the God. And she's sitting at the table with a bunch of Hindus she's sharing the gospel with, and she says, do I eat or not eat? I took her right here. This is where this text applies first, foremost, easily. When we move from that to extrapolate general principles, we have to be very careful. Okay? So I don't, first of all, go to this text to talk about the principle of allowing freedom, which is an exercise of faith. I go to Romans 14, where Paul is again talking about this idea of freedom in Christ. I won't read the whole text, but I will bring you to some high points here. Verse 14, verse 1, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Notice, first of all, that as you go through the text, the person who is weak in faith is the one 
who either believes a day is holy and therefore you shouldn't work, or you shouldn't eat certain foods, or you shouldn't drink certain, certain drinks. The, un, the lack of maturity is shown by the fact they're being controlled by outward things in Paul's mind, okay? And so he, he says, let, in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I would say to everybody, this is why I'm saying we must allow freedom. Paul would say, you're dividing over an issue that shouldn't cause division. You should allow for another person's living out their faith. Don't put external regulations where God doesn't put external regulations. So what's the regulation from God? Be not drunk. Don't be a glutton. That's my regulation. Don't be a drunk and do not be a glutton. Not a step further to say don't drink. That's what Paul's saying not to do. Do not do that. You're passing judgment on one who eats when you do that. You're passing judgment on them. And that's not your job. God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. Before his own master he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So then he goes into this long description about one worships on a day and one doesn't see a particular day. One eats and another doesn't eat and he goes through this and then he comes down to verse 13 therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide here we go so i've talked to the one side stop passing judgment on your brothers who choose to moderately drink alcohol or eat food for that matter or exercise or any of these other things stop passing judgment on them you're not their master now to those who do drink alcohol moderately and to those who do eat types of foods that are, are uh, partaking in those things, here's your text. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So we're not wanting to cause another Christian to stumble. So we're careful in our use of these things to not offend them. Now, this isn't a simple, puffed-up, uh, prideful thing on their part that they don't like drinking. This is their, you're causing their faith to weaken. You're causing them to turn back to an old way that's dangerous to their faith. It's a serious matter. Not simply, well, you shouldn't drink. I mean, we've got to dig a little deeper than that. Why shouldn't I? Well, because I was an alcoholic for 27 years, and God has just delivered me from that. And your drinking in my presence causes me great harm then brother who drinks you should take your alcohol and pour it down the sink immediately and you should never pick it up in their presence again it's a serious thing not a frivolous self-righteous person who comes to you and says you can't drink because that looks bad on God not that no that's what's wrong with this part of the world that's why the lost people laugh at us about our silly regulations because of that attitude. But when it really causes grievous sinning on their part or it endangers their soul, put it away and don't use it in their presence again. Don't ever cause them to stumble, Paul would say. 
Don't look at a weak person and, call, and throw. In other words, you see a little kid running along in their faith, and you're, you're, you think it's funny to throw a trip wire out in front of them and watch them fall down. <laughs> look at that foolish person. He's still living so immaturely. No, Paul says no. Go ahead of him and remove the obstacles so he can run. That should be our attitude. So those who are abstaining, you shouldn't force other people to abstain. You should grow up to the point you understand food and drink don't matter to God in the sense that he created all of it. And it can all be used rightly in moderation. But if you're moderately drinking, understand that's not greater than your brother's soul. Put it away if it offends and causes him to stumble. That's that's the freedom aspect. And it makes for a stronger argument. He keeps going here and says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that caused your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whatever, but whoever has doubts, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever he does does not proceed from faith. It's sin. We must, in this refrain, I want to make a challenge to you. If you are a non-drinker, if you're a non-buffet eater, if you're a no-preservatives person, if you're an exercise seven days a week, two or three hours a day or if you're a I must have sex before the sun goes down person, if you are any of these, any of these, I must go to work every day, I want to challenge you to something. Build your position on the Scripture. Reason it before God as to why you are doing what you're doing in this area of freedom. And then always live by it. Live consistently. One of my problems with young evangelicals, I put myself in that category, is we have rebelled against the legalism of the past by throwing caution to the wind in this area of alcohol particularly, and we are becoming drunks, and we are useless in the kingdom of God. We need to reason why it is we use it, and then we need to be consistent with the Bible in our use of it, and we never need to compromise that. I don't care how joyous the occasion is. Never compromise it. Stand firm. And I want to tell you what that does for you and for me. I believe this is not in the Bible. John Piper disagrees with me. John MacArthur disagrees with me. And I respect them totally. And they may be right. But I I think in our culture, in the South, where we pastor and shepherd, if you hold a real position of moderation, a biblically consistent, free position called moderation, if you hold that, you have a stronger platform from which to preach the gospel, not a weaker In some areas, you would have a weaker position. But in our area, I think because of the legalistic stronghold Satan has put up here around alcohol, those who completely abstain, you lose a lot of times the opportunity to have the witnessing opportunities that I have and others have. You lose them. So I'm just telling you, I think for me, I've reasoned it out. You can come talk to me. I'd love to sit down and talk with you about this subject. But do not, children, just say, well, I'm 21. I can drink. It's cool. No. It very well may be sin because it's not from faith. The only way it's from faith is if you've gotten before God and taken your text and you've reasoned out your position and you've principalized it and you live by it. Now it's in faith. 
And the only person in here who's not drinking faithfully is the person who has done the same in their position. You may have never touched alcohol, but you may be sinning every day in regard to alcohol because you have not reasoned your position out from the Scripture. You have a legalistic stance. And it will be obliterated in the sight of God. All things must come from faith. We have freedom in this area. We must seek to maintain a good reputation outside the church. 1 Timothy 3, 1-3 says that we must be of good above reproach with those outside the church. If you're hanging around people drinking with them and you're losing your witness because of that, what are you doing? If you're going to places where rampant drunkenness is taking place, what are you doing? It's foolishness. You must have a good reputation. No wonder you can't share the gospel with that guy on Monday because Friday you were partaking the same way he was in the drinks that he partook. You're losing your opportunities. You must maintain a good reputation. Fifth, we must not be controlled by any idolatrous desire. Ephesians 5 speaks clearly to this. Do not be drunk with wine, but be drunk filled with the Holy Spirit. We cannot let idolatry creep into our lives practically. If we do, we are heading to destruction. Finally, sixth, we must find our satisfaction and joy in Christ alone. Psalm chapter 34 needs to be memorized by every person in the Christian faith. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. My call to you is not to go be a drinker. My call to you is not to go be a buffet eater. My call is not for you to kick preservatives. My call is not for you to do any of these things. My call to you is taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that He is good. And it will cut you from your desires in this world. It will eradicate idolatry. Psalm 36 is another passage, verse 7 and 9, quickly says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is what we must find satisfaction in, in God himself. Not in drink, not in food, not in exercise, not in sex, not in work, not in any outward thing in Christ and Christ alone and the problem the reason we are not leaving this place as witnesses to Jerusalem Judea and to the ends of the earth is because we don't find satisfaction in him alone you can't take him to the unreached peoples of the world if you love drink food exercise sex more than him Many of you are default staying in this place simply because you will not say, Christ is my all-consuming joy. The reason we preach moderation in all things except worship of God is because that's the only way we lift Christ higher than all things in our life. And so the perfect Son of God was able to sit down with the religious during their fast days and fast. 
He fasted and outfasted them. They went a week. He went 40 days and 40 nights. And that same Son of God sat down with the sinners and drank without getting drunk. And he won them to the gospel. He moved interchangeably between the crowds because he wasn't connected to any crowd or any cause but the kingdom of God. You see that? Why? Because he had tasted of the Father and he knew that he was good. And he had feasted at the divine love feast of all eternity within the Trinity. And he had said, I don't want these lesser things. I'm not bound by them. If you're a drunk... You're in here today, and I'm telling you, there are those in here who are drunks. Listen to me. You're settling for second best. Give it up and come to Jesus. And some of you teetotalers, you're settling for second best because all you're interested in is outward things, and you don't know how to feast with God. Come to Him, all you who are thirsty and without bread, and He will give you from His abundance without price. Come. That's the beckoning call of the Lord. John Piper on this very subject says, he chooses not to drink. He said, I don't impose that on anyone else. When I was in Germany, I did drink. Now here, I don't drink. I'm not consumed with either position. I'm just telling you this. Lastly, why do I not drink? He said, Because I know myself, and I would get entangled in it, and so I don't do it. But listen, you got to get the second half. Because I'm waiting for the kingdom, and there I will drink to the full. The first taste I want in my mouth of new wine is in the kingdom. Not here. Mine's better. Yours is lesser. I'll pass. That's a godly, faithful position. Okay? So, I say all of that to beckon you to come to Christ, to taste and see that He is good. And that's what we have the opportunity to do in the supper. As we close, as we close out today, and I know that these are long sermons, but you can't preach, I can't preach a topical sermon. Some people do in 20 minutes. You'll want me to be expositional again. You take a couple of verses, you can do that. But you can't do that on this. This is a huge subject. Some of you needed this desperately because you're in danger. One of three ways you're in danger. And I guess what I would say in closing is this banquet is better. This banquet is better because it represents Christ who is a full and satisfying Lord of lords, King of kings. And so as we move to close, we're not going to have an altar call. We're going to have a call to communion. I want to just call you to come. This is the bread without price. It represents the flesh of Jesus Christ. This is the wine without price. It represents the blood of Christ. And He has invited you to come. So if you're with Him, if you're in Him, if you're in faith today, you believe in the Son of God as your one and only Savior, I invite you with Him, come and take and eat and feel no guilt in it, but only feel joy and excitement and passion and love. And if you're not in Him, don't come. Your presence at the table 
speaks judgment to you. You're coming to please the people around you is dangerous to your soul. And so as the Apostle Paul would say, if you're not in Christ, you don't live by faith, you're not in Him, don't come. Not because we hate you, but because we love you. But while you're sitting there, and they're coming, all the people of God are coming, know this, you too can come. We have communion at this church every month, and if you can't take it this month, I want you to take it next month. And the entrance to that is to feast on Him in faith, to believe in Him, to grasp hold of Him.